The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of Grantmakers for Education, author of the book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Today's episode invites us to explore the conceptions of our brains that dominate so much of our thinking about learning and education. We've all heard talk about what it means to be left-brained and right-brained. Things like, I'm a left-brained person, so I'm good at math, or I'm a right-brained person, and so I'm creative. Brain science has long since moved past that oversimplification. We now know that the brain's left and right hemispheres are involved in everything we do, whether it's creative or analytic. But more recent work in neurobiology and neurocognition do suggest something interesting about the two hemispheres. Rather than representing different abilities, they seem to pay attention to the world in different ways. Both ways are important, and the two are always interdependent. In order to survive and navigate our world, human beings have to be able to do two things at the same time. We have to be able to see the big picture, our surroundings and where we fit into them, but we also need to focus on what's most important and know what to do about it. It turns out that the right hemisphere specializes in this first kind of attention, and the left hemisphere focuses on the second kind. The right connects us to embodied sensations, to the general nature of our environment in a given moment. Our left zooms in and often tells us what action to take based on all that data. It locates cause and effect, it identifies boundaries and differences between things, and it indicates what we can do with all of this information we're taking in. The left tends to take the data out of context and to reduce it to abstractions. Now, while this left hemispheric thinking is essential to survival, when it's running the show, we're also blocking out a vast amount of data, sometimes blinding ourselves to context and complexity. Ideally, the power balance between the right and left hemispheric tendencies enables our right hemispheric capabilities to interpret and use the abstracted and oversimplified concepts of the left. Though her work is more focused on psychology and behavior than neuroscience, our guest today, Annie Murphy-Paul, has written a lot about what happens when we favor one set of hemispheric tendencies over another, and how we can change that. Annie is the author of The Extended Mind, which explores human cognition and learning. In her research, Annie found that humans in the West are extremely brain-bound, which means that we overvalue the role of thinking in our experience. We think about the brain as a place where thinking happens, and not so much about other kinds of experiences besides thinking. We think of the brain as a computer, a tool. And as we'll learn in later episodes of this podcast, this bias has deep historical roots in Western culture. In fact, it explains how we ended up with our current ideas about what school is, what learning is, and what smart means. But to understand all of that, we first need to know how our brains do work in the world, which is where Annie comes in. 
What she found was that humans think as whole beings, experiencing and taking in our surroundings, other people, and our own internal data through all kinds of different channels. And a lot of this happens without conventional thinking at all. She talks about interoception and embodied cognition, the ways that our bodies actually think, in many cases faster and more accurately than our brains. She talks about situated cognition, the idea that where we are, what surrounds us, influences the processes and the outcomes of our thinking. And she talks about distributed cognition, the idea that sharing the process of thinking shapes how thoughts emerge within us as individuals and in a group. This is what enables groups to produce results that are often better than the sum of what each individual member could do on their own. Human beings are balancing these different cognitive tendencies all the time, and the calibration shifts constantly. Learning environments that run on brain-bound experiences feel very different from environments that invite in this extended mind that Annie's talking about, the ones that make room for both hemispheres in each learner's experience and speak to all the different channels of experience. What our brains can do is contingent on their surroundings. If we want to transform education, we need to abandon the idea that the brain's capacity is fixed and measurable, and this episode shows us just how powerful that change can be. Welcome, Annie Murphy-Paul. I am so glad to have you here with me today. I'm really glad to be here, Alka. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So I want to jump right in. I heard you interviewed once, and you said something to the effect of, we don't always know what's best for us, and so we <laughs> cling very firmly to practices that don't serve us. And it takes a kind of paradigm-changing new view to make us think, oh, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe the way we've been doing things isn't so great. So what's the paradigm-changing view, the new way of understanding the world in ourselves that you're putting forward in the extended <laughs> mind? Yes, I did say that. Um, and I think I might have said that uh, from 25 years of reporting on psychology and cognitive science, that's my main takeaway, that we often don't know what's best for us because um, we can be misled by our own impressions and channeled by our own preferences and histories. And, you know, change is really hard. And so I do believe in the power of a transformative idea to shake us up and lead us to see things in a new way. And for me, that idea was the theory of the extended mind, which um, originated in philosophy. It uh, was first introduced in a, an article in a philosophy journal in 1998. Uh, it was written by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers. I didn't run across it until much later. Uh, I had been reporting and researching and writing about the science of learning for a number of years at that point and was finding myself drawn to um, areas of research that were a little bit on the edge of conventional cognitive science, things like embodied cognition, you know, the idea that we think with our bodies and situated cognition, the idea that where we are affects the way we think and socially distributed cognition, the idea that we don't think as individuals, but really with other people. Um, and these were exciting bodies of research to me. I felt that they were related in some way, that they were sort of pointing fingers at each other, but I couldn't really figure out a way to, to pull it all together until I ran across this idea of the extended mind, which holds that uh, we don't just think with our brains, we think with mental extensions that include our bodies, our physical environment, uh, our relationships with other people, and our, our tools and technologies. 
So this to me was um, the big idea that that could transform the way I looked at the world, the way I looked at myself, the way I looked at activities like thinking and learning. And then, of course, being a writer, I wanted to bring that to other people. Um, so that that became the kind of kernel for my book, which, you know, is is called The Extended Mind. It, the the idea is not mine originally, but I, I think I'm partaking of the extended mind when I I borrow and and elaborate on the ideas of other people. Um, I love that. And I love it because I'm a philosopher by training. So it's oh. always lovely for me to point to something and be like, look, all of this <laughs> stuff that people were writing is really helpful. It is useful. Yes. Um, so I know, you know, there's a lot you have to say about the ways that this broken metaphor of our mind, right, as a machine, this computer, mm-hmm. we've built schools and workplaces on top of it. But before we go there, I was curious, well, we all grow up and we internalize certain ideas of what it means to be capable and what learning is supposed to look like or feel like. And I heard you say that as you were writing the book, you had to challenge some of your own assumptions. So what were some of those assumptions and mm. beliefs? that you found challenged as you were going through the writing mm-hmm. process. Yeah, well, I, I mentioned Andy Clark, one of the philosophers who who originated this idea of the extended mind. And one of uh, his coinages that I have adopted is the word brain bound. And Andy Clark uses that to describe a mode of thinking about thinking, um, thinking about the use of, of the mind that is that really restricts us to the head, to the brain. Um, and I would say uh, when I first read that term brain bound, I recognized myself because I would say that I was a very brain bound kind of person. You know, I'd been, I'm a writer. I live in my head a lot. You know, I'd been a freelance writer for many years at that point. And so that's a pretty solitary undertaking. You know, I'd have occasional interactions with editors, but, um, mostly was, was working on my own. And I did have this idea that was inculcated in me by editors early on in my career that if you want to get work done, if you want to f- meet your deadlines and you sit there and you work your brain until it's done. And so there wasn't a lot of room for movement or physical activity or internal sensations, all these things that I came to believe were really important in terms of thinking with the body. So I really, you know, I, another thing I like to say is that writers, um, write what they need to know. And so I think there was something that drew me to this, this body of work that um, I saw in it something that was was unfamiliar to me that was not the way that I usually was working, but that I needed to learn about and I needed to bring into my life. So the the whole process of, of researching and reporting and writing the book was a real education for me. Looking back, though, now, mm. have there been times in your life or experiences like stepping into a different culture or a different kind of social system that kind of gave you glimpses into that even before you read the uh, wrote the book? And if so, like, what were they and how might they have changed you if you had or how did they <laughs> change you for a period of time, even if you sort of went back to your, your normal yeah. way of being? Interesting. I think the one that probably primed me for being open to this new perspective was being a parent and seeing how my children learned. And um, 
how embodied that their learning is, how they touch and smell and feel everything. And that's how they create these vivid memories, you know, or how social, of course, all learning for children is and how important the spaces um, uh, that they that they learn in are. And in fact, my my children's school was way ahead of me on this. I mean, on all those um, all those in all those realms, you know, it's a school that is uh, very much play based, very organized around social interaction. The kids are outside a lot. They're running around a lot. They're um, they're active with their bodies and uh, and the classrooms are very carefully designed to support learning and thinking. So I think that was probably my first entryway into this idea that thinking doesn't just involve the brain. And I, I, one other thought I have about that is that we, as a culture, we are a very brain bound culture, but we do kind of make exceptions for children. You know, we've, we, we, cause it's, it's, it's so hard to, to deny or to, to get away from the fact that these are the ways that children learn. So for example, we think it's fine for children to learn math using manipulatives, you know, but we, then we have this idea that as, as we grow, as we get older, we need to put those things away and start doing things, you know, a mature thinker does her thinking in her head. And I had certainly bought into that, um, that notion. And so it was really eye opening to me to see that all these things that work so well for, for young children and that we allow them, but then we take away from ourselves as we get older, all of those things continue to be the most effective and efficient ways to think and to learn. So that was that was probably the real life demonstration that opened my eyes to the possibilities. Hmm. It makes me think about you know, this idea as kids get older, it's sort of about grit, right? It's about this may not be something <laughs> right. you like doing, you might right. prefer to do it this way, or the, but, but grit is the, you exercise your brain, you exercise it, make it stronger. And that concept of grit has been really popular in education circles, I think because it feels asset-based, right? So that everybody has a brain, you can exercise it, and everyone mm. can make it stronger. Mm. Where mm. does it fall short, hmm. that metaphor or that yes. idea? Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I do talk about um, the concept of grit and also the concept of the growth mindset in in the extended mind um, and use those ideas as a kind of foil against to push off against a bit. And I, I do want to say that I really admire Angela Duckworth and, and Carol Dweck, the, the two psychologists most associated with those two ideas. But um, I do think that they are limited and limiting in the sense that they are very um, brain-centric, neurocentric. They're really about, um, ex again, this idea of exercising the brain like it's a muscle. That's how the brain gets smarter. And that's how we acquire skills. And all of that has been, for many people, a very positive and empowering message. Um, so I wouldn't at all want to take that away. But I do think it has limitations in the sense that um, I think we've all either been the kid or had the kid who is working their brain as hard as they can, but it's not uh, its not getting them anywhere. And that can be a real prescription for frustration. Um, and so what I love about the idea of the extended mind is that it opens up so many avenues um, and so many opportunities to to attack that same problem that might be giving a student a lot of trouble in a different way. And so, you know, they might um, act it out, or they might teach a, a you know a, a 
a classmate about how to, you know, they might teach someone what they're what they're trying to learn, or they might tell a story about it, or they might take a break and go outside. I mean, there's just so many outside the brain resources that we could be pulling into our thinking and learning. And the growth mindset and grit, I think, sometimes give us a sense that the brain is the only resource. And that's, mm-hmm. that's um, you know, that's what I would want to push back against. I am a firm believer in both. And so mm-hmm. it can be true that grit is a thing. And it can also be true that there's something more. So I really appreciate you saying that. I'd love to jump into embodied cognition. What is this? Mm-hmm. And why is it important? Yeah. Uh, so the first chapter in the extended mind is about um, a process called interoception, which is not a, a term that I knew before I started doing my research. But um, it is it is a phenomenon that all of us are familiar with in the shape of uh, gut feelings or gut intuitions. And um, interoception is scientist's word for the capacity to tune into those internal cues and signals. And what's so amazing to me, I think, again, this is part of my education in, in, in writing the book, was that there is this constant flow of internal sensations and and uh, messages that are, are is there for us to tap into. But um, we so often don't do that for one of a cup for one of a couple of reasons, um, one of which might be there's just so much external stimulation coming at us all the time. And that's where we think our work happens. So we we tend to forget that we have an interior world as well that's always there for us to tap into and tune into. And the other reason that we might not be in touch with that internal world is that we have this idea that bodily sensations need to be quashed or suppressed in order to get the job done. You know, we need to power through. This is a little bit of the, the grit idea. We need to power through and and sort of um, push the signals from our bodies away in order to get that done. Um, and so what was so enlightening to me and so um, revelatory to me when I was doing the research for this book is that the idea that we actually, um, again, we're take, there's so much information that we're taking in as we go through our everyday lives, far more than we could process or store on a conscious level, you know, because our conscious mind is is only one very small part of the whole. Um, but we are taking in those patterns of experience that we encounter in daily life and and storing them non-consciously. And then the way those patterns become evident to us when they're needed, when they're when we encounter something similar in our in our present experience, is through those signals in the body. You know, the, the we may feel our heart quickening or we may notice that our palms are sweating or we may feel, a tightening in our chest or something. And those um, those bodily signals, that's our body sort of tapping us on the shoulder and giving us some valuable information. But we can only act on that information to, to make sounder decisions or have um, greater insight into what's happening if we're tuned into those uh, interoceptive sensations. So I've been really heartened to see that um, in some school districts, um, teachers are actually talking with with students now about their interoception and tuning into their bodies and paying attention to that internal world. I think that's such a valuable lesson, especially for our kids who are growing up in this incredibly noisy, incredibly distracting external environment to know that there always is that those those subtler and quieter um, um, cues and signals that are, are within the body that are always there for us to tune into. 
But you also cite in the book a couple of different studies. Um, there was one that looked at the at people who were picking up um, messages and signals through their body about a card mm -hmm. game and pattern mm -hmm, recognition. Mm -hmm. And it was like mm -hmm. what they were feeling in their body, they got there faster than their brain did. And yeah, Wall yeah. Street traders who mm -hmm. did better um, overall when they listened to their body. Mm -hmm. And so, but this is also really hard, right? In America, mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. we are taught, I think, to kind of go up into the rational. I've grown up in mm -hmm. different cultures and different mm -hmm. cultures have different relationships with our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, but it, but tell us why this isn't sort of woo-woo. Like give us some of the, the research <laughs> and the science and sort of what's uh -huh. emerging about why uh -huh. we should take this seriously. Like it's just not a nice thing, but we actually enhance our capacity to be in the world and make good decisions yeah. when we listen to our bodies. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the study that you mentioned with the card game was originally, um, that was a experimental paradigm originally pioneered by Antonio Damasio, the USC neuroscientist. And he found that um, when participants in the study were asked to choose cards from a number of decks um, while being hooked up to a skin conductance monitor that that monitored their their nervous system arousal, that um, unbeknownst to them, two of those decks were good decks. They had lots of rewards. Two two of the decks had um, had uh, lots of penalties and. The participants' bodies, their, their nervous system started um, flaring when they, whenever um, the participants thought, you know, moved to to pick a, a card from the the bad decks because the body was already sensing a, and responding to a threat that the non-conscious mind, uh, sorry, that the conscious mind was not aware of, and in fact, um, those bodily uh, reactions were present. Many, many turns of of the game before um people the participants actually realized consciously what was what their bodies had realized um several minutes before so when you think about the speed and the complexity of the decisions that many of us are called on to make all the time and financial traders are are, are a good example um they have to make split second decisions that really don't allow for a lot of conscious processing and so in a way, it's not surprising. I mean, it is it is surprising, and that's why I included the the study in in my book. But um, it makes sense that, in fact, those um, financial traders who are more interoceptively attuned, who are better able to identify when their heart is beating, that's a, a test that scientists use as a proxy for that kind of bodily sensitivity. Um, they uh, make more money, they're more successful in their jobs, and they stay longer in, in what is sort of notoriously a, a very um, high turnover um, profession. So we can see in that laboratory example and in that real world example that being able to be in touch with uh, what the body knows and to act on that um, gives us an advantage that um, we that we may think, we may imagine would come from rational processing, but in fact, the, the faster and more intuitive way of thinking that the body engages in is often the better bet. 
It's really interesting. And as the world gets more complex, to your point, we do have to right, use all the tools we have. Um, mm-hmm. And so that feels important. So I have two teenage sons um, who appreciated all the research you did about sitting still, being harder <laughs> and sort of being harder mm-hmm. cognitively than than standing or walking. They were like, see. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we've mm-hmm. organized our formal education system in our schools around the idea that you want to sit you want to focus, not like unlike the editors, right, that were giving you those right. messages. Right. So can you tell us a bit more about what we've learned in recent decades between the relationship between bodily movement and cognition? You talked about gesturing, you talked about mm-hmm. fidgeting. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just tell our, our listeners a little bit more about that. So one thing that comes up again and again when I'm talking about the extended mind is about what the brain is what the nature of the brain is, what it evolved to do. You know, the brain is a, it's amazing. It's uh, astonishing. It's all those extraordinary things that we're told by, you know, popular science writers, but it's also um, quite a limited organ. It's, it's, it's quirky. It's idiosyncratic. It's, um, it's a biological organ that evolved to do some very specific things that are different from what we ask it to do in our in our modern world. Um, and one of the things it evolved to do is is help the body move, you know. And we, uh, as as human beings, evolved to move and to think at the same time, not to isolate those two things. And yet, in our schools and our workplaces, we do have this notion that if you're going to do real thinking, serious thinking, then you need to sit still. And there's a couple problems with that from the point of view of, again, like the kind of creatures that we are, the kind of brains that we have. One is that it takes a fair amount of mental effort simply to inhibit our natural urge to move because to sit very still is actually for long periods is actually not a natural or a congenial way to, to use our bodies. So it takes a fair amount of mental bandwidth just to, to um, inhibit that natural urge to move, as I say. And that's bandwidth. That's those are mental resources that we could be applying to um, to our learning or to our work. So it um, it makes sense to actually allow students to move in, so you know, kind of micro ways, small ways that can be uh, um, enabled by uh, having an activity permissive classroom or having students use standing desks. Um, we just tend to move and shift around um, and and engage in that kind of healthy um, movement more when we're standing than when we're than when we're sitting still. When we're sitting still, that's giving our brains the um, a signal that we're at rest. you know I mean that makes it makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary point of view and a biological point of view. but um, of course, when we want to be thinking and learning, we want to be as energized and uh, you know alert as possible and sitting actually works against that. Um, and there's some interesting research that I, report on in the book about kids with ADHD, um, research using sort of an activity sensor that was strapped to their legs um, while they were, for a study, while they were um, doing uh, cognitive exercises found that uh, the intensity of their movement while they were thinking and working actually positively correlated with their performance on those cognitive exercises. In other words, the more intense their movement, the better they were thinking. And so we have this idea, and this this applies in a sense to kids who, um, students who don't have an ADHD diagnosis as well, um, because again, p- human beings, our bodies are wired to move, that students, I mean, uh, teachers and parents often have this idea that 
we need to get kids to sit still in order to think or to learn when really uh, lots of kids are going to need to move in order to learn and to think and making room for that, um, especially for those kids who may need that um, in a, you know, um, because of, of the way their own brains are wired, I think is something that we could do in our classrooms, you know. Um, I'll just add one more thing, which is, is uh, about the value of, of fidgeting, that this is uh, sort of another thing that we tend to stigmatize in our culture. You know, fidgeting is not something that is looked on, looked upon uh, so positively, but actually it's a very fine-tuned way to modulate our arousal. Again, when we're sitting for long periods, we can get drowsy or lose alertness. And fidgeting is actually a way to kind of um, stimulate our nervous system to keep us in that zone of engaged alertness. Um, so, and interestingly, research on on fidgeting, and there there is such a thing as research on fidgeting, has found that different kinds of objects and different kinds of fidgeting movements may uh, produce different kinds of mental effects in terms of soothing anxiety or keeping us alert and awake or making us think expansively and create creatively. So I think um, the main message that I took away from all this research is that movement we we need to find ways to integrate movement into thinking and learning and not think that we need to exclude it or suppress it in order to have thinking and learning happen. Although I, in what you were saying, I also heard you saying that it can't always be controlled movement, right? I think we have this mm -hmm. idea of, oh, we let them play for recess for 20 minutes, but then when they're <laughs> in the classroom, they have to sit still. And that that ties to the to gestures and the research mm -hmm. on gestures that you talked about, about the ways in which you can see people's bodies in their gesturing get mm -hmm. to concepts before the brain. So can you tell us a yeah. little bit about that body of research? Yeah, I love the research on gesture. It's um, so, uh, again, sort of um, eye-opening, eye mind-opening, because I think we tend to think of gesture in our culture as if we think about it at all, we think of it as a kind of clumsy add-on to verbal expression, which we really elevate in, in importance. Language in general, we, we elevate and celebrate, but we it's part of our kind of um, general disdain for the body and elevation for, for what is cerebral or um, intellectual. But um, in fact, uh, gesture is not at all a sort of clumsy tag-along. In fact, um, many of our most cutting edge, our newest, our most advanced ideas that we're just beginning to be able to put words to, they're showing up in our gestures first. You know, um, our hands are capturing uh, the meaning of what we're trying to say with words um, and a few milliseconds before we're actually able to, to, um, to say what we mean. And in fact, we often use gesture to kind of bootstrap our our verbal expression. We're kind of reading off our own hands um, to inform our, our emerging description or explanation. So this is not, you know, the other the other thing we assume about gesture is that it's all about communicating with another person. And of course mm -hmm. it plays that very important role as well. But it's also a part of our own thinking. It, it forms part of a loop whereby, um, you know, if people are restrained from gesturing, they think less coherently, they express themselves less cogently, they're less likely to arrive at a solution because the hands and their movements are actually playing an integral role in the thinking process. 
Hmm. Well, that transitions really nicely to the socially distributed cognition idea, right? You you note in the book that our culture tends to elevate and kind of deify the individual mm. kind of thinker. Mm-hmm. And you talked about Steve Jobs, right? The people who go <laughs> it alone. But you you use Steve Jobs as an example of someone who didn't. He actually learned from a different mm-hmm. context and applied it to a new one. So tell us the story of mm-hmm. kind of 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 why we are not individual geniuses and that mm-hmm. actually in all sorts of ways we are accessing socially distributed cognition. So much of, of of this book, The Extended Mind, ended up being cultural critique, which I really hadn't planned on, but it, it came out that way. And just as our culture tends to separate mind and body, we seem to want to separate social life on the one hand from um, mental or intellectual life on the other. And that's it's it's such a misunderstanding of the nature of the human being and the human brain because um, we have very powerful social brains that are always on. Our kids' social brains are not only operative when they're on the playground or in the in the lunchroom. You know, they're 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 on all the time. Um, teenagers' brains, in particular, are very sensitized, as we know, to social stimuli and social interaction. And so, the message of the research that I I write about in the in the the extended mind is that we want to harness that. Um, social brain in the service of learning and thinking, and that we can do so by um, engaging social activities like storytelling and teaching each other and um, debating and arguing with each other. This is how knowledge is um, is created and is shared and has always been, you know, so the idea of, of the individual as um, in, in his own sphere kind of creating, coming up with great ideas all on his own was always a myth, you know, but um, more than ever in our society, in our world where um, the problems we face are so enormous and so daunting and the amount of information that we have to to take in is so great. And when expertise is so increasingly specialized, we actually have to think together in groups to meet the moment, you know, to to solve the problems of our world. And there's no better place to start learning how to do that well than than in schools. Well, it's interesting, right? We have a system that privileges, like, it's your grade, it's your mm-hmm. accomplishment, it's your right. whatever. And as soon as you allow this social cognition, there's a question in the kind of meritocracy mm-hmm. that maybe we can culturally critique of sort of how do you how do you attribute that who gets credit mm-hmm. who gets whatever mm-hmm. so there there are all these like mm-hmm. ways in which our culture and the fabric of our society kind of push us towards that highly individualized piece you mentioned Absolutely. storytelling and you talked mm-hmm. about the work of Christopher Myers a business mm-hmm. professor mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. at Johns Hopkins and he studied medical teams mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i really love that story about one, the benefits and the need for them to mm-hmm. learn in the social way. But I also thought there was something very interesting about the particulars of how they learned. So can you tell us mm-hmm. more about that mm-hmm. that research? What yeah, I love that research too. Yeah, so Christopher Myers flew along on these um, what are called transport nurses because often um, uh, a patient will have to be transported in a very um, – in an emergency fashion from, say, a small hospital that isn't able to treat that patient uh, or from the site of an accident. or 
So what Christopher Myers discovered while flying along with these transport nurses is that there's no manual, there's no, you know, written set of written instructions that could prepare these nurses for all the various situations that they were going to confront. And the most effective and the most uh, efficient way of, of preparing them to deal with whatever, um, whatever was going to transpire during that shift was the informal stories and anecdotes that were swapped among um, the various teams of transport n- nurses that would work together. And that, um, interestingly, this was, it was a very informal process and it was a spontaneous one. And it was not one that um, really had to be directed or they didn't have to be instructed to do this. All that needed to happen was to make a space and make time for people uh, to to share stories with each other. And stories were a particularly uh, valuable form of sharing information because they, they uh, include so much of what psychologists call tacit information. You know, it's not just like um, rules for... Um, you know, that might be found in a kind of diagnostic manual, they were, they include all this situational information, like, this is what happened when I had this kind of patient, and she showed these kinds of symptoms. And this, you know, it was all this kind of situated information that was so useful, um, because it, it conveyed exactly the kind of information that someone listening to that story would need to know to apply if she were to find herself in that situation. Um, and then those stories had all the um, benefits that come along with any story. Um, psychologists call uh, stories psychologically privileged because uh, the brain seems to be wired to, um, to attend to, to understand, to remember, and to act on stories in a way that um, it, it does, the brain doesn't respond to the same way to sort of more um, um, expository uh, information that's presented in a more expository form. So mm-hmm. um, for all of those reasons, um, storytelling was by far the most effective and efficient way for these nurses to share information and to become better at what they do. There was one other piece in there that I thought was fascinating. When they were asked to do the sort of Mm. the the telling of the story in formal context, they stripped Mm -hmm. out all of that stuff. And that it was when it was in the context of an informal Mm -hmm. situation that the storytelling came out. That leads to this idea of our environment, our mm-hmm. where we are, how we are in that space really matters. So uh, what is situated cognition? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this is uh, when thinking about situated cognition, I do like to mention this very common um, metaphor that we use to think about the brain. We, we think of the brain as a computer. And, you know, that that idea is so entrenched in our culture. It's, it's embedded in our language. It, it shows up uh, even when we're not consciously likening a brain to a computer, that's sort of our model for what a brain is. And situated cognition is one of those things that really shows us how very flawed and limited that metaphor is, because a computer operates in the same way no matter where it's it's positioned. You know, this laptop is going to work the same here in my home, inside my home, as if I, you know, took it outside and, and worked in a park. But the human brain is not like that. It's exquisitely sensitive to context. Um, that could be so the social context. It could be uh, the physical context, how your body is feeling. But I think, um, you know, right now we're, we're, we're addressing the, the context of 
the space that we're in and and our brains are very and our and our bodies and our whole ent- our whole organisms are very sensitive to the place that we're in and the cues that we are drawing from from that place and that's um something that I, I think those who work in schools and who design schools and who um, are responsible for the way uh, space is, is used in, in schools could really could really um, take advantage of the fact that that those spaces matter for how well students think. Well, as as I was reading that section on built spaces and I was thinking about schools and school policies, there were a few things that came to my mind. Hoodies, um, for example, writer banned, but you talked about monks who use their hoods very yes, specifically to kind true. of like shape their environment, the ability mm-hmm. to make spaces our own, right? We used to have lockers and you would decorate your locker or whatever. But in many schools now, there are very few spaces where young people can make the space their own. Um, you talked about open walled environments and the benefits and kind of drawbacks. So I- I'm curious about how writing this book Maybe it sounds like your sons go to an environment, to a school that's kind of doing this, but how it made you think about like things that schools should be rethinking in very kind of specific ways to reflect some of the research in situated cognition? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, even in my uh, my son's school where, uh, as I say, um, I think they're doing so many things right. I mean, it's still the case that by middle school, they're moving students are moving from one class to another. Their, what was their desk yesterday is not their desk today, won't be their desk tomorrow. You know, And we know from, um, from research on the effect of, of, of space that it's very important that we feel empowered in the space that we're, that we're in, that we um, have a sense of, of that it belongs to us, that we control it. You know, And I think there's uh, you're right that many students don't have that sense of of ownership over their own personal space when they're at school. And I think we can th- try to think of ways to give students at least some of that feeling. Um, lockers would be would come to mind. Um, you know, I write in the book about the power of evocative objects, you know, um, things that are outside of us that remind us um, either of who we are, what our particular identity in that setting might be, you know, things that remind students of of their identities as scholars and as thinkers, Um, and also cues of belonging that remind uh, students that they are part of a valued group. Um, And just as important is um, being on the alert for objects and symbols in schools that tell students or some students that they don't belong, you know, and I think that those are uh, those are things that school leaders and that and teachers can really um, maybe take a fresh look at in terms of what kind of messages and cues are our students taking away from what they see around them every day. Mm. And what's the role of nature in in our in our learning and thinking? Yeah. So um, this was another topic like intuition or interoception that initially I approached with a little bit of skepticism just because uh, the idea that nature is good for you is is such a, a platitude. Um, and I was really interested to, to discover or to um, learn about the, the mechanisms by which nature can really have an effect on our cognition. And again, it goes back to the fact uh, that we evolved in a specific setting. We human beings evolved outdoors. This life where we are inside almost all the time is a relatively, you know, evolutionarily speaking, is a very recent development. 
And so the, our, um, you know, our, um, the kind of information, the kind of stimuli that we find outside in nature, um, is our own, um, perceptual faculties are really tuned to that kind of information, to, um, to, to trees, to clouds, to grass, to, um, all the, to the color palette that we encounter when we go outside, to the kind of movement and the kind of shapes that we encounter when we go outside. And it's very restful. It's very effortless for our brain to take in that kind of information as opposed to, um, the very hard edged attention that we have to bring to, uh, our learning to, you know, to focusing on symbols on a screen or on a page and to the kind of, uh, stimuli that we might encounter, like in an urban environment, you know, very loud noises and sharp lines and, um, fast moving objects. All of these things are draining to our, uh, attentional capacity and we can restore our attentional capacity by going outside and engaging in that kind of diffuse, yet pleasantly diverting attention that is so characteristic of our attention when we're outside. You know, we're not paying attention to anything in particular, so we're not drawing down on our uh, attentional resources with that kind of effort. And yet we find our attention drawn here and there in this very effortless and pleasant way. So um, going outside is really the the most effective way to refill that attentional tank that gets drawn down by our everyday thinking and learning. I've really appreciated your focus in the book, in this conversation about this idea of what's useful, right? So we mm -hmm. it's not about making things wrong and we did this the wrong way, but mm. it, it's about what is useful to us now. And you wrote, I'm just going to quote here, individual cognition is simply not sufficient to meet the challenges of a world in which information is so abundant, expertise is so specialized, and issues are so complex. And then you go on to quote Brian Uzi, who's a business professor at Northwestern, who said, almost everything that humans do today in terms of generation of value is no longer done by individuals. It's done by teams. And, mm. you know, as I was reading the book and kind of thinking about all these ways that thinking happens, that learning happens, that we generate ideas, it speaks to sort of a multiplicity of minds mm -hmm. that everyone mm -hmm. is going to have different constellations of ways in which these things show up and that they need mm. them to show up. And how we design policies, how we design accountability is a large part of whether we can or cannot make room for that. And so mm. I'm curious if you have thoughts about like what needs to change in terms of how we mm. assess learning, how we hold our system accountable, if we're mm. going to try and make room for this kind of work mm. in our schools mm. and learning environments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, in general, love to see a shift away from this intense focus on individual achievement, individual assessment, um, individual work, exactly because of what you were just saying, Alka, about the importance of being able to think with other people. Um, you know, I end the book actually with um, a, an approach to education that that arose in the 1970s. I'm talking about um, what's called the jigsaw model of instruction, whereby, um, and it was introduced, as I say, in the 70s by Elliot Aronson, a social psychologist um, at the University of, of Texas at Austin. And he was brought in because uh, not unlike today, um, the schools were being roiled by all kinds of social and cultural um, 
tensions. And he was brought in, you know, initially just to, to kind of help quell this, these, this, these, these enormous t- uh, tensions that were um, disrupting, disrupting the schools in his district. Um, and what he, what, what Elliot Aronson noticed upon observing um, the classrooms uh, in, in Austin were that students were really at each other's, um, they were at each other's throats in part because of the culture that had been created in the school of, of individual competition and trying to best each other, but in no way to, to work together as a group. And so his approach, interestingly, um, quite different from, you know, that maybe the diversity and inclusion efforts that um, are more explicitly about um, sort of teaching certain beliefs or certain ideas, this, that he, he went right to the method of education that these kids were um, engaging in. And he, he utterly changed the paradigm from one of um, individual striving and, and achievement to one where you can't succeed unless you're cooperating and collaborating with your classmates. So the jigsaw model involves um, setting a goal for the whole group, setting a task for the whole group, dividing pieces of that task among members of the group, and then making it so each member is teaching the other, the other um, team, their teammates they're they're the part of the of the um, task that they are the 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 expert on. So everybody has to listen. Everybody has to communicate. Everybody has to cooperate in order to do well as a group. And interestingly, um, Aronson found that not only did students learn better with this method, they also got along better, cooperated with each other. There were the tensions um, did. Um, Decline, and so um, I know that uh, a co- collaborative or cooperative model of education has been tried many times, and uh, it has a steep road to a steep hill to climb because our culture is so intensely individualistic. But I think um, <laughs> I think it's time to try that again. I really think um, the moment calls for that, and uh, experiments of all kinds in collaborative or cooperative learning, I think, are, um, are what we should be pursuing. What would you say to parents who are mm-hmm. listening to this, right, who might, if we're going to do this very different kind of education, it's so different mm-hmm. from what most of us experienced, it's going to feel mm-hmm. scary. So what would mm-hmm. your message be to mm-hmm. parents and those who have children they care about and are maybe mm-hmm. scared mm-hmm. of experimenting on them? Yeah, I, I know it, it sounds experimental. And I even use the word experiment. And I, I at this point, we need to experiment because it's so these methods would be so different from from conventional school as we've all come to know it. But in a way, it's not experimental at all in the sense that it's deeply, deeply rooted in human nature, in our um, in our drive to connect with each other and to learn with each other. I mean, how how much of what we know did we actually discover for ourselves? Very little. You know, I mean, uh, the whole enterprise of knowing and learning is collaborative by nature. So I'm asking for educational practice that practices that reflect that reality rather than deny it, you know? So I know it can feel scary and experimental and, and maybe risky, but uh, I would just want to sort of remind parents that um, this, this is our nature as human beings. And is there a way that we can 
harness that and leverage that rather than denying it and suppressing it. Mm. So the last thing I want to talk about is equity. Mm-hmm. A lot of you know our listeners um, care. It's a it's a central concern about our education system, and a lot of the reforms over the last twenty years were intended to address issues of equity. But because of and I think we're going right back to the paradigm, right? In the mm-hmm. paradigm that we were operating in, it was more time on task. It was more seat time. It was less recess. It was classroom management that was about stillness and control, and my own research was about how schools shifted and for which students. Mm. And this feels like one more place where inequity already exists because many of the schools that do the kinds of work that you talk about or have pedagogies and approaches that reflect what you're talking about are in the private Mm -hmm. and independent sector, Mm -hmm. only accessible to some families. And um, so I'm curious what you, you would say to funders and other folks who are listening to this and care about education and reducing inequities. Mm-hmm. Where do they need to begin spending their time and their money and their kind of ability mm-hmm. to convene conversations if you're gonna mm-hmm. if they're gonna build out a new understanding of mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. our brains and learning are and what our education system should look like as a result? Yeah. Well, one idea that I have found really useful in beginning to think about this, and I I admit I've only really begun to think about what the extended mind might have to say to these issues of equity and inclusion. Um, I write in the book about what I call extension inequality. And what I mean by that, obviously, I'm, I'm riffing off of ideas of income inequality or wealth inequality, but I think an, a, an invisible kind of, or until now, invisible kind of inequality that we need to reckon with is a deep inequality in the access that people have, that students have, to the raw materials of thinking, of intelligence, you know? And, um, the conventional model is that intelligence is like a lump of stuff, a finite lump of stuff, bigger or smaller, that is sealed inside the head of each student. And that um, has allowed this whole testing industry to arise that that claims to kind of be able to measure very precisely what the unchanging amount of intelligence sealed inside an individual head is. When you think of um, these same activities through the lens of the extended mind, it looks very different because that's what the extended mind is claiming is that our thought processes are dynamically assembled moment to moment from the raw materials that we have available to us in our environment. And when you think of it that way, then the quality of the raw materials that people have access to, that students have access to, becomes enormously important. It becomes constitutive of how well they're able to think. And then the next step from there is to recognize, and it's it's in some ways a very um, sobering realization, it was for me, that um, there is simply no um, denying that, that um, students... Uh, access to the raw materials of intelligence is in no way equitable. You know, students do not have uh, the same kinds of access to um, uh, green spaces, to quiet spaces in which to to do their studying or even to sleep. Um, that is where I, it's a tall order, I know, but mm-hmm. that's where I would want to direct um, grant makers uh, and funders' attention is to start to think about how can we make 
access to mental extensions more equal um, for the students in our and the children in our in our country. Um, that is wonderful and so true. Um, and we've got to kind of stop the one-off pieces and really think in a holistic way about the ways in which we allow both the processes and the sort of experiences of learning to look different um, for kids. So I, um, it, you talked about this raw lump in your brain, right? And yeah. to me, the future of smart as a title is the lump in our head is kind of like whether you're smart or not, or how smart mm -hmm. you are or not. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I, I want to end by asking, you know, my belief is we shouldn't ask, are you smart? Because we all are. The question is, how are you smart? What do you mm -hmm. know about yourself, who you are? Um, who you want to be in the world. And so mm -hmm. I'm curious how you define being smart for yourself these days. And how do you want your kids <laughs> to think about that? Uh, well, you know, I heard, I first heard that formulation of yours, Alka, last week when we had a kind of preliminary um, talk about this podcast. And I've been thinking about it ever since, you know, not are you smart, but how are you smart? Um, and it got me thinking about myself and I and how um, my particular intelligence, such as it is, I think is a um, what Howard Gardner calls a synthesizing intelligence that I like to range across disciplines and make unexpected connections, you know. Um, and I was lucky enough to find like a major in college that supported that. I was in an American studies major, which is an interdisciplinary major. Um, and I my Again, to go back to what we were just saying a moment ago, my dream for all of America's children would be that they could find um, in school a place that welcomes their kind of intelligence. You know, I, I'm afraid that that's not happening now, um, but um, that would be to me uh, just um, an incredible goal for our education system to meet kids where they are in terms of what kind of smart they are and allow every kid to know that they that they are smart but that smart takes all different all different forms um and i'm i'm so um i have so much admiration for your your putting that question out there which is it's uh and that formulation out there because it's it's really so different from the message that so many kids receive at school thank you and thank you for being part of this. Annie Murphy-Paul, um, our guest today, really appreciated your time. Wonderful conversation. Thanks. Thank you, Alka. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of SMART, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.